Welcome to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Located in El Dorado Hills, California, it is our mission to help others find and follow Jesus. We hope this message inspires, encourages, and uplifts you today. That is very kind of you. Can you keep clapping for me, please? I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. This is always fun to do. Are you guys doing good today? I know it's rainy. It's not typical, at least what I think of California weather, but it's just a beautiful day to be alive. We're breathing. We're healthy enough to get here, and we're just going to have a good day at church. I already determined it, so you might as well just accept it, okay? It's going to be a good day at church. It won't be, though, if we don't do this first. I just want to pray. I just want us to take a quick deep breath, relax. I know getting here sometimes is crazy. Some of y'all, let's be honest, some of you married folk, you argued real well the whole way here, and now you're acting all spiritual in worship. Guess what? Jesus loves you. He loves it all. Bring it all here today, okay? Let's pray to him, though. Jesus, we give this time to you and we ask that your power and your presence would be so tangible today. It's so evident in this room, God. There are precious souls. Every single person in this room and listening online is a precious soul to you, God. And I'm asking that you would minister to us through your word, God. Take my flawed, imperfect, broken, biased words, God, but by the, by the power of your perfect word, God, I pray that something so sweet would happen and we walk out of these doors better than we walked in. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all my friends said, amen. amen. So I've been for the last almost 20 years to one degree or another getting to preach the Christmas narratives uh, all throughout the gospels, particularly in the first few chapters. And I absolutely love it. It doesn't get old because there is endless dimensions and nuances to the announcement of Jesus coming into this world. When he came into this world, it was just with so many beautiful and incredible implications. And I'm gonna take a risk this weekend um, because I'm gonna preach from a non-traditional part of the Christmas story. In fact, some of you wouldn't even consider it in the Christmas story, but I 100% after studying it and thinking about it and talking about it, completely believe this is a huge part of the Christmas story, but it's definitely a unique angle and it's nuanced. So I'm asking you to give me some latitude and some grace. We're going to go to Matthew chapter one here in a minute. If you don't have your Bibles, don't worry, it'll come up on the big screens. But before we do that, I want to talk to you kind of about what Matthew chapter one is. It's a first impression, right? It's not only the first chapter of Matthew's historical and journalistic take on the life of Jesus, but it is literally the first statements being made about the new covenant in the New Testament. It's kind of a big deal. And here's why it's a big deal is because first impressions, let's be honest, first impressions are everything to us human beings, is it not? Like if you have a, if you're a business owner and you're um, helping people with a particular product and I'll say maybe the product's not even the best one that's available out there in that particular genre. If you have good customer service, if you create good first impressions, people will keep coming back. Your business to a, a good degree will continue to thrive, Right. Anywhere you go. In fact, when we have church here, there's volunteers, faithful volunteers. Some of them are out there right now. Long before you get here on Sunday morning, they're here, they're getting ready. And their chief goal, whether they're saying hi to you in the parking lot, whether they're greeting you at the doors, and then we have the most coveted of all volunteers, the coffee makers. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for that God-ordained drug you allow us to have. I've had too much already this morning. Uh, the whole goal behind whatever any volunteer, those amazing volunteers working over in kids, the whole thing we ultimately want with that is a good first impression. You understand that? It's not the only thing, but it's a first impression because they're so important. And, and I'm gonna tell you something about church. Every week that we come here and meet, there are some people coming back to church for the first time in a long time. 
In fact, every time we come here to meet, there's people coming to church for the first time ever. And here's another truth that I've learned over a couple decades of pastoring. Every time we come to church, somebody got enough courage to walk back into the doors of a place that hurt them. Whether it's just just church or it's another church. Look, as long as human beings are involved in church, there's gonna be hurt. There's gonna be baggage. And for a lot of people, there was even growing up, church abuse like to a whole nother level. And so they haven't darkened the door of a church. And for some reason, every week, someone's gonna choose to come through this door or any other church and have enough courage and bravery to come back. How important is the way they're met when they come on in? How important, right, is a first impression? It's everything. Now, gentlemen, we, as we get older, we have something that I don't think the ladies struggle with as much, but I've noticed I'm, I'm on my 49th year. I turned 49 actually yesterday. You don't have to clap. You don't have to sing for me. That's not why I said it. No one cares. I'm in my 40s, all right? But, the, but here's what I'm learning. The more tempted I am as I get older is to become curmudgeonly, right? Just a grumpy old man. It's just, it's tempting. We have a term for it in the modern generation. We call it the get off my lawn guy, right? Like you care about the pristine nature of your lawn more than cute little kids in the neighborhood running on your lawn and you will open up the door and say, get off my lawn right now, right? Like we can become that. And if there is one area that I am seeing myself becoming a little bit of the get off my lawn guy, it it has to do with restaurants because you guys know this. I talk about food all the time. I'm a foodie. And when I go into a restaurant, I don't care how five-star Michelin the meal is. If the customer service isn't good, I'm not going back there. Sorry, I've just gotten to an age where I don't care how good the food is. I care about service. I care about first impressions. First impressions matter. And when it comes to restaurants, I don't think anyone has first impressions whooped more than this one particular chain of restaurants that is taking over America. Like if you study their profit margins compared to other restaurants in their genre, it's not even close. When you drive past this restaurant and you see a mile long line going through their drive through, you know that God is up to something, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. Chick-fil-A. I'm getting you hungry for Chick-fil-A today and guess what? It's closed because they love Jesus more than food. Now, Chick-fil-A, I I dig it. I love it. It's, It's good food. They make good chicken, but guess what? So do a bunch of other places that I've been. Do you know why the masses just keep going back to Chick-fil-A? Because nobody has nailed down the art of the first impression more than this company. It is unbelievable. A couple years ago, I was on social media and I was just doing what many of us do. I was scrolling through videos and there was this video. Talk about good advertising because of first impressions. They didn't even have to pay for this advertisement. But there was a lady that was so incredibly blessed by Chick-fil-A that she turned on her phone and she started to talk about it. Watch this. tell you something. I don't know what military base these people trained in, but I'm not mad at them. You got four people outside with handhelds, okay, under umbrellas. You got two people outside the drive through to greet you with your food. It be ready. I was in the line 3.5 seconds. That was to order, pay, and get my food. Baby, let me tell you what kind of training they doing. They is in the military in Chick-fil-A. I'm telling you, they have some training that they're doing. And I'm proud of them. 
I'm proud of them. I don't understand why I go to Popeye's and I got to wait on hot chicken when all you sell is chicken. McDonald's don't ever have nothing working and don't let me get started on Burger King. Okay? But Chick-fil-A be killing it. They have a military base that they train out of. I'm convinced. And I, I just appreciate the professionalism. Hello, Miss Carissa. How do you know me? Because I told the girl back there and they communicate. Communication is the key. Fries hot. I didn't even check my bag. And if it's a mistake, then that's what I was supposed to have. That's what I'm saying. Y'all but who I feel I'm I'm emotional right now because who in the day we live people don't they don't they don't even like their jobs like that. But these people, they are on it. They got a scholarship fund going right over your condiments. They say that they give these people a scholarship fund. Take care of your people. Take care of your people and your people will take care of you. That's the lesson today. It comes through Chick-fil-A, but this is what's real out here in these streets. I'm about to eat with gratification. I didn't mind paying for that. I didn't even mind. Swipe my card. Swipe my card, Chick-fil-A. Whoo, I got a tear. These, these fries is hot. Smoke coming out of them. Look at that. I'm satisfied. I don't even need need no more. Oh my goodness. Every one of them like that. Not just one. Mm-mm. You can't have it your way. You can have it your way. Thank you. I approve this message. Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad. I wish she was my sister, right? That kind of spirit. That right there, though, think about that. That is the power of a first impression and what it has on human beings. There was millions of people in different formats on social media that ended up watching that video. They got millions of people to view an advertisement like none other for them and didn't even have to pay for it. That's what happens with the power of first impressions, whether they're good or bad, right? So we're looking at this Matthew thing. Now, I studied a little bit of journalism in college and journalism 101, when it comes to writing 101, one of the things that you're told is like, if you get an article in a magazine or a paper, and let's say you're given 1,000, 1,500 words, you've got 100 to 200 words to grip the reader, or they're just going to move right on to the next article, right? It's that first impression. When you're writing a book, you got one chapter tops nowadays with our attention spans as short as they are. If that chapter is not provocative to some degree, if it is not hard hitting, if you don't come out of the gates hard and fast with something that's gonna capture the audience, that first impression is gonna be lost on them and they're gonna put the book down and they're gonna be on to the next book, right? And so when we're thinking about not only Matthew's first chapter in his book, but come on, think about this, what we're about to read. It is the literal first impression of this covenant that we now sit under, that we have now put our faith in. It is the first chapter that for 2000, and thank God Matthew didn't know this, but for 2000 years, several billion people on planet earth would read. Matthew had no idea, but the book of Matthew would be part of the best selling book in the history of the world. And the number two best selling book isn't even close to the amount of sales of the Bible. So when Matthew is talking about the single most important person in the history of the world during the most important time in the history of the world, he better start Matthew chapter one hard and fast. It better be compelling. It better be gripping literature, right? It better be provocative. And so you know what Matthew decides to go with to kick off the whole new story of the covenant? A genealogy. 
What were you thinking, Matthew? But the more that we will look into the implications of this today and see what was going on in the first century Judea, the more we see that Matthew was brilliant in doing this. Let me read it for you. It's a record, Matthew chapter one, of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here we go, deep breath. Abraham was the father father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, Remember that name. And his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was, remember this name as well, Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Awesome name. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. And now I want lunch. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was, remember her name, Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was, will remember her name too, Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of a guy we've all heard of, King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother, and remember her name, had been Uriah's wife. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of uh, Jehoshaphat. Give me a minute. Oh, Jehoshaphat, the father of Yon, Yon, the father of Boring, Boring, the father of, please stop reading this, please stop reading this, the father of can't take this. You guys get the point, you know what I'm saying? And I'm going to spare us a long, long list of more and more generations that I would just keep reading. And I'm just gonna go to what it was finally trying to get to when it finally gets to the man, Jesus. It says, Mathon, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, of whom we finally get there, was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. To which, again, you say, really, Matthew? That's how we're kicking off the story of the single greatest human in the history of the world. God who became man for the sake of us broken and crazy human beings. That's how you're gonna do it. And Matthew would say, that's absolutely how I'm gonna do it. But you gotta understand, we're 2022 Western-minded people. At most, the only thing we do with genealogies is spend a little money to have some fun to see where our roots come from, right? We go on those websites and we pay some money and send them a drop of blood or whatever we do and they tell us our ethnic background. But back then, you have to understand genealogies were everything. And Matthew is written to a specific audience. All four gospels are written to different audiences. I don't know if you knew this. This is helpful sometimes when you're reading the the four gospels. Uh, Luke was written predominantly to Greeks that were becoming Christians. That was his focus. That was his passion. In fact, it starts out saying he's writing to a Greek guy named Theophilus. Mark was writing specifically to a Roman audience. They didn't care about genealogies that much. John, whose gospel didn't come out for decades later, was writing to the church. They already understood the principles of Jesus. Now, Matthew, though, this is interesting, he was writing specifically and intentionally to the Jews. And genealogies in the Jewish culture, particularly in the first century, they were everything to your life. They were as important and more important than our passports we have. They were as important as our driver's license and is useful. They were as important and and, and acted like birth certificates. When there were land disputes and there were many back then, guess what the temple courts went to to make a proper judgment? They went to your genealogy. Socially, and, and God never intended this to happen, but because of the fall of man, we have always lived around the world to some degree in caste systems, have we not? Your caste system socially was determined by how nice or not so nice your genealogy looked. 
Your bloodline was everything. Your bloodline from birth immediately gave you some sort of advantage or if it went the other way, some sort of disadvantage. So when Matthew chooses to start writing to this Jewish audience with the genealogy, man, they're locked in. Because unlike us, they could tell so much about someone's genealogy. Now, here's what's most interesting and provocative and brilliant and gripping that Matthew would choose to start the whole Bible, the whole New Testament off with Jesus's genealogy is, do you know, for all the things that tells us historically about his bloodline, here's the thing that's the most captivating. It is peppered with scandal. Peppered with scandal. We'll go over some of it in a minute, but you got to understand that you were allowed in first century Judea to curate to a certain degree. You got to curate and manipulate your genealogy. In other words, the crazy uncle at Thanksgiving, you don't have to put him in there if you don't want. Here's something that's unfortunate, but it was true at the time back in the Middle East first century is that women were like just barely a step above property. Ladies, if you still think it's a man's world, I'm not about to argue with you. You're you're probably still right. And we're we're continually fixing that and working because everyone matters. But in first century Judaism, women were barely above property. I'll never forget reading from a commentary one time. A, A theologian was saying that a very common prayer in a male household in first century Judea, like for breakfast or something, would have gone like this. In front of his whole family, unashamed, he would say, Lord, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile. And Lord, I thank you that I'm not a woman. Amen. Now bless this breakfast to our bodies. (laughs) I tried that out once after I read that for breakfast and we're still in therapy. So don't do that, gentlemen. It's not a pro. It's not right. Right. But that's literally how women were considered. And so here's what you could know about genealogies back then is women were rarely, if ever, mentioned in a genealogy. And I can promise you who was curated out of people's bloodlines in, in Judaism. Any Gentiles that creeped their way in through marriage, through intermarriage back then, that was like the big no-no. But everyone, because they're human, at some point in their family bloodline and genealogy would have intermarried with some Gentiles. But guess what you never did to have on record with the courts? You never put the Gentiles or the women into the genealogy. And guess what else you could curate out of the genealogy? You could curate, curate, say it, come on, Chad, start over. It's just a word, say it, you got this. You talk for a living. Curate. Black sheep in your family and black marks in your family. People that that you're not proud of, people that bring shame to, to your bloodline and to your name. And so you're starting to see what's so amazing about this genealogy. Like, think about it. I picture, and we don't know because it's not written in the scriptures, but let's use our holy imagination. At some point, I'm guessing Matthew like cleared his, his historical take with Jesus. He's like, Jesus, you know, I've been documenting our last three and a half years together and I want to publish this. I want the world to know about the greatest man who I've ever walked with and talked with in my life. And, and I'm going to start for the, for the Jewish group of people I'm writing to. I'm going to start, of course, with the, with the genealogy. So I just need to, to get your approval or disapproval on who I keep in and who I leave out. And so I, I got to tell you, there's, there's some black sheep in, in your family. What do you want me to do with them? And let, let's just go back. You remember that one of the first names that I mentioned was a, a lady named Tamar in Matthew chapter one in her bloodline. And some of you would know her story. Most of you wouldn't, but Tamara, unfortunately, I'm sure she was so much more than this, but you know what she was most historically and famously known for was having an incestuous, adulterous relationship with, ready for this, her father-in-law. Yeah, why, Tamar? Here's what's crazy. And she would end up getting pregnant and having twins. And guess what? Those twins 
born out of adultery wouldn't get left out of Matthew's genealogy. We read they were called Perez and Hezron, her twins, but they came from her father-in-law. So she cheated on her husband. He cheated on his son with her. Like, think about the drama. Talk about a black sheep. And they are in the bloodline of Jesus Christ. Do you know who her father-in-law was? Judah. Kind of a big deal in the redemptive story of Christ. Do you remember there's 12 tribes of Israel and one of those is Jacob's son named Judah? Do you know multiple times in the scriptures and the gospels, Jesus is referred to as what? The line of the tribe of Judah, right? Why wouldn't Jesus curate that title out and say, hey, can you leave Judah's name out of this? Can you not associate me with Judah? But no, and he was like, no, I am unapologetically the lion of the tribe of Judah. I'm the protector of Judah. I'm the watcher over of Judah. I'm the leader of Judah. So I picture Jesus going, hey, Matthew, yeah, don't take Tamar out. Leave her in, because I curate nothing. I bring no shame to the story of humanity. I bring redemption. I bring no shame to the story of humanity. I bring redemption. And then another girl mentioned in there, again, he says, leave the woman in there. But now we're going to get what I call a triple whammy, because now we get a, a woman named Rahab. So he's going to leave a woman in there, but here's the deal. Rahab's a Gentile, double whammy, right? But then what's the triple whammy? Rahab's a prostitute. Like all three categories, woman, Gentile, black sheep, right? And Matthew's going, we don't want to leave Rahab in there. And he's like, I absolutely want to leave Rahab in there. She's the one who was the enemy of my people Israel. But when Israel soldiers came to her town, she hosted them graciously and hid them and kept them alive so that they could go on to take their inheritance. Of course I'm keeping Rahab in there. Don't curate her out of here. I'm not ashamed of Rahab. I'm proud of Rahab. In fact, Hebrews 11, this great chapter we have about the heroes of our faith, guess who would be added to that list as well? Rahab. We are getting such an incredible first impression about the heart, the mind, and the ways of our Savior who came into this world on Christmas, Jesus Christ. It's incredible. It's not just Rahab, who's next? We got, okay, now, now it calms down a little bit because we get Ruth, right? We get Ruth, there's a whole book dedicated to her in the Old Testament. I love the narrative of Ruth. Ruth, I can't talk this morning, I apologize, Ruth. It's incredible and Ruth is marked by dignity. She is marked by class. She is marked as a woman of integrity and principle. It's an, if you've never read it, go. And it's a cool, if you're into that, it's a cool really love story too. But she's a Gentile still. She's a Moabite. The Moabites were the greatest adversaries of the time of Israel during the period of Ruth. Greatest adversaries of Israel. They wanted to destroy God's chosen people. And God says, no, 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 no. You leave Ruth in there. And then we get to the next one. Talk about scandal. Uriah's wife. Do you remember in the genealogy we read? And then so-and-so is the mother. And that's Uriah's wife. Well, guess who Uriah's wife is? Her name's Bathsheba. You remember her in the story of David because you guys did a whole series on David? This is a woman who is most notorious, unfortunately, because again, I'm sure she was so much more than that, most known for her worst moment. When her husband was off to war, fighting for who? King David. She goes over to King David's palace upon his command. So I blame, just so you know, ladies, she always gets the worst rap, but I blame David. 
David knew what he was doing. David was one who commanded her. And when a king commands something, this is another sermon for another day, but I'm sticking up for Bathsheba because Jesus does by putting her in the genealogy and not curating her out and saying, I'm not ashamed of her story. I love her. She's a daughter of the living king, a living God. And then he goes on to put David in the story. And Bathsheba was a part of arguably the biggest black mark on his life, this man after God's own heart because he committed adultery with her. And then you know what he does for PR's sake? He eventually, so he wouldn't be shamed when her husband comes home, he sends him right back to battle and he puts him on the front lines and in ancient war tactics, you guys know what that is, right? That's a guaranteed death sentence. So you could argue by American judicial standards, David's guilty of first degree murder because that was as premeditated and planned as you could get. You want to talk about a black mark, but guess what? Jesus says, no, you keep Bathsheba in there and you keep David, this man after my own heart, despite what he went through and the mistake he made, you keep him in there. You don't curate them out. You don't take out their son, Solomon, who was born out of adultery because he would eventually become king and a man of God himself over time. And then we finally get to the end and it's who? Another woman, good Jewish woman this time. But this is a teenage peasant girl that nobody knows. There's nothing special about her other than Jesus chose her womb to come into this world. Now we have 2000 years of retrospect to put our faith in what we call the virgin birth, a very important part of our creeds and our doctrines as Christians. And I know it's crazy to the world. You believe in a virgin birth, really? Yeah, we do. But we've had 2,000 years of all kinds of other proof to come and undergird that creed and that value of ours. Back then, no one believed Mary when she was 13 or 14 years old. And she's like, I'm pregnant, but guys, listen to me. I promise it was from the Holy Spirit. Her husband at first didn't even believe her. So she's instantly ostracized by society. And Jesus says, you're not taking, you want to keep marrying your mom? Yeah, that woman's a saint. <laughs> Literally, no pun intended. No Catholic people in here, great. That was supposed to be a good joke. I don't like any of you right now. That was funny to me. I'm keeping it. So think, what, think what's, what, what's happening here. The brilliance and how provocative and gripping this would have been for this Jewish audience. And I'm asking us to kind of, to get into their world for a minute and to understand Hills Church, the incredible implications of Matthew chapter one, the statement that is being made about this king that we come to worship in this season of Christmas. He comes into the world and he says this to every single one of us. This is so liberating if you can let God speak to you this morning. I've been getting excited and happy about this. I've been preaching myself happy all week preparing for this message because it's like God's going, guess what, Hills Church? I don't need you to hide or curate or be ashamed about anything. You're full, come on, we grew up in an, in an era of social media there's no more curating and filtering than social media. It's all sound bites and highlights, right? It's the ultimate form of curation. I've never once thought to post a, a, a post fight video of me and my wife after we've had a good old fashioned knockdown drag out and just go, hey, everybody pray for us. Me and the wife aren't getting along. So grateful for social media, right? I don't post those. I post it, you know, when it's my birthday or when it's, you know, Christmas or my kids doing something awesome. I don't post the chaos of our unclean laundry room and the chaos of our kids fighting half the day. I post when they're doing their most amazing things, right? And that's okay. I'm curating though. We have been trained from birth to curate. 
to manage our images. And the most beautiful thing to me about Jesus in this season is he comes into this world and says, listen, you were never meant to hide things from each other. Let's just go back to the Garden of Eden, right? What's the first thing Adam and Eve do the minute they're on the back end of their first and worst mistake they would ever meet? make. The first thing they do, y'all, is they start to cover things up. They start to hide things. Why? The Bible tells us for the first time in human history, they're feeling shame, right? I talked about shame. If you were here this summer, I almost sliced my finger off in that message. You guys remember that? If you were here, that was fun times. Still have a scar to prove it. But this was like the ultimate and first and worst thing the human has to steward because of our brokenness that comes from sin is this thing called shame, and Jesus coming into this world and Matthew starting his Christmas story off with Jesus's bloodline that is not edited and curated. It's not filtered. It's Jesus going, everyone is invited in to redemption. Everyone is welcome back into the kingdom of God. And here's the truth, Hills Church. Let's just be honest for a minute. Come on, let's be honest. Our lives if we could hear everybody's story in this room is just this big mixture of beauty and brokenness, right? Let's, just be, let's be free for a minute. And, and while our brokenness shocks other people sometimes, the scandalous nature of our brokenness, our different stories, the things we would all love to get back in life that we wish we wouldn't have done and that we, we walk in regret and we walk in shame of, here's the deal. None of it was a surprise to God. He had ordained every day in your book before one of them came to be. Why wouldn't we want to put our complete heart, mind, body, and soul, and spirit into our relationship with Jesus? Why would we not want to put our trust in the one who will judge us least? Is judgment required for sin? Yes, but can I remind us of the good news? Jesus took and bore our judgment that we deserved in our place on the cross when he shed sinless and innocent and divine blood for you and I because he knows the power of potential judgment that it has on us. You know, what the, you know what the fear of judgment does? It causes us to hide things. It causes us to curate things. It causes us to be dishonest about ourselves to ourselves. It causes us to be dishonest uh, about ourselves to other people, including the people we love the most. There's things that my wife knows about me 19 years into marriage that I would have never dreamt of telling her in our first few years of marriage. I didn't have enough intimacy there yet. I didn't have enough relationship there yet. I didn't have enough trust that she could handle the full story of my brokenness. But as, as we've gotten older and more mature and intimate in our marriage, one of the beauties of, of getting older uh, in, in, in marriage or any relationship is that you start to trust each other more, not just with the highlights, but with the lowlights, with the downsides, with the black marks. And there is a richness of intimacy when I can tell my wife more and more and more the fullest story about who I am and know that she's still going to be there tomorrow when we get up. There, there, there becomes this love, this intimacy, this, this, this thing of she knows the worst of me and yet still wants to be with me. I will die for this woman. I will give my life for this woman. I will do everything I can to serve this woman. But now, think about this. Jesus, 
you have to spend zero time curating anything in front of because he knows everything about your story, even just a little bit better than you do. Now, don't get me wrong, you're a pro at your story, right? You, to be a master at something, you gotta spend 10,000 hours. You spent well more than 10,000 hours with yourself, y'all. You have a PhD in your story. You know the fullness of the beauty that represents your life. I wish we could put up on the screens, one at a time, the beauty in everyone's story that's represented in here. Do you understand how inspired we'd be? Do you understand how much of the brilliance of God we would see from each other's stories? Do you understand how much brilliance you would see in yourself if we could put all the most beautiful, holy, right moments that you've lived up on this screen? But guess what? If we would equally that day put up all of our black marks, our regrets, our failures, our sins, our sin patterns, all those moments we'd love to get back, it would be sobering. The amount of uh, vulnerability would be too overwhelming. The amount of intensity, the amount of uh, duplicity and hypocrisy that we would feel seeing all that beauty, but then seeing all that brokenness at the exact same time. And what this genealogy is trying to do is Jesus announcing, listen, bring it all to the table. The Apostle John would say it this way. Jesus is one of his closest followers would eventually write, write a letter to a church and he would say, if we are in the light as he is in the light, then you will have fellowship with one another. And in other words, then you'll get back to God's original intent. There will be a degree of freedom and liberation in your life when the lies and the hiding and the curating start to go by the wayside. And so what do you do? You start with Jesus. I understand that not every human, this doesn't mean we just get up out of church and we just go and tell everyone the worst of us immediately. People have to earn trust to be led into that kind of stuff. But here's the deal. Jesus has already fully 100% 2,000 years ago earned our trust and he already knows the fullness of your story. And now what he says to you after the cross is, guess what? You can always come to me. I know you can't always go to other people, even the people closest to you. For several years, I kept things from my spouse because I just didn't think she was ready. But Jesus says, no, 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 you come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, you just come to me. It's an invitation. Jesus says, you come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy in your time of need because I am a priest that was perfect in every way yet still died for you. So guess what? I have sympathy for me. You can trust me. We serve a savior that says, you get to cast all of your cares on me all of them, the good, the bad, and the ugly, cast it all on me. And he says, here's why you can do that. Because I care for you like nobody else on planet earth. He said, yeah, but the, the judgment, the, the embarrassment, the shame. He's like, I bore that on the cross. You now put your faith in my righteous finished work. And we can throw embarrassment and we can throw shame and we can throw all of those feelings that keep you wanting to uh, hide in your secrets. We can throw those out. I heard a pastor once and it, and it floored me. I've never forgotten it. He was just quickly spouting out a one-liner in a sermon and it wrecked me. He goes, you're only as sick as your secrets. And I didn't hear another word the rest of the sermon because I was just sitting there thinking about any and all secrets that I may have still been keeping from myself, from God, from people. And his whole point was he was wanting liberation and freedom for people in there. And Jesus is trying to tell us, listen to me, the worst thing you can do if you really want to walk full and you want to walk free is keep wasting unnecessary time and energy curating your story. Spend your life 
wisely and humbly rolling out the best parts of you, celebrate the best parts of you. Don't be embarrassed. The world needs to see the brilliance God put on the inside of you. But be courageous enough to equally have some people in your world, God first and then people second, that you can confess to. James would say, confess your sins one to another. Why? Here's the good news, that you might find healing. It's not to embarrass you. There's something about saying, yeah, I, I did that thing. Or yeah, that was, that was my former life. And I talked to an addict after the first service, a former addict, and he was just really encouraging about the message. And I just was sitting there watching a guy who, who unashamedly, as we met for the first time, just started telling me the worst part about him but it was with excitement and energy because of what? He found Jesus. So now all of a sudden his addiction, which was his biggest black mark that should have got him kicked off of his family's genealogy for PR's sake, now all of a sudden he's excited to tell me, you know why? Because it's a redeemed part of his testimony. Every black mark you have, you and your family, your family bloodline, your family tree is an opportunity when it is surrendered to the grace of Jesus Christ, it now becomes an opportunity to be forgiven, to start over smarter, and then here's the fun part, to be used as a weapon of your testimony in this world that so desperately needs to hear, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was lost, I once was broken, I once was hurt, but guess what? Now I'm found, and our only hope, and I know for most of us in this room, this is just a reminder today, but I'm real serious about a few of you in this room because a, a few of you, I don't know, it might be one, it might be 10, that doesn't matter. But as I prayed this whole week, the, the main thing God kept putting on my heart was ask some people to come to know Jesus this weekend. Invite people to know and be saved by the saving grace of Jesus. There's some of you in here, a few of you, who have been compelled today. Not by my words, you heard me, I could hardly get half my words out today. I'm just a, a, an unimportant middleman, but, but you've been compelled, and I'll tell you what it is. It's this thing called the Holy Spirit of God, and he's doing something so beautiful right now. I know because 20-some years ago, he did it to me. He's wooing you right now. He's tenderly with kindness. He's gentle, and with gentleness right now, he's going, man, I know what you're hiding. I know what you're carrying. I know the shame that you have on you because of fill in the blank. And guess what? Freedom can start today because I am inviting you to know a, a person named Jesus who is unafraid of the worst parts of you. Paul would say in Romans, while we were yet what? Sinners, Christ died. He didn't wait for any of us to get it all together. He didn't wait for any of us to clean up and curate our genealogies and our bloodlines and our stories. While we were yet neck deep in sin, Christ proudly died for us. Why? Because he knew it was the only hope of redemption and salvation. And John 3, 17 tells us Christ did not come to condemn the world. He didn't come to condemn the Tamars and the Judas, and the Rahabs, and the Bathshebas and the Davids for their worst moments in life and their brokenness. He came to save them. So let's talk for those of you. It might, again, it might be just one of you in here, but that's why we're here today because you're about to receive eternal life, but I want you to know what you're receiving. When I say salvation, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this. There is a man named Jesus that we believe with all of our hearts is God. 
who became, for our sakes, for about three decades or so, he became a man as well. And he put a lot of his heavenly authority and rights down so he could come and know what it's like to be you and I. And he ultimately came here for this moment where he would get up on a cross and shed sinless, innocent, perfected divine blood. And the Bible says, without the, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And he would come and he would take his perfect, spotless, sinless blood and he would use it to say, you can have mine and I'll have yours. You can take the judgment I deserve as I die for you and I'll take the judgment on the cross that you deserve. Fair, talk, talk about trustworthy. Talk about someone I'm okay telling my secrets to. Talk about someone that I wanna serve with all my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength. Talk about someone that is so good and so kind. That's who you'd be putting your faith in today if you were to accept the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And in the Bible, the book of Romans, it says it's, it's, it's this beautiful. It says, if you'll just confess with your mouth that you sinned, that you're broken like the rest of us, that's no shocker. That's all of us in this room. If you'll just confess that you've sinned and that you really believe by faith Jesus Christ is Lord, you shall be saved. The Bible says anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The book of Acts, it says this about Jesus. This is super important. It says there is only one name under heaven with which men can be saved. The apostle Paul in Philippians Two would say that is the name that is above every name, Jesus, that at that name, every knee someday will bow. Every knee someday. Sinner, saint, Buddhist, Muslim, Christian, Mormon, atheist, agnostic, human. It doesn't matter. At some point, everyone will finally be in the tangible presence of God and go, oh, my word, Jesus was the way. And you will confess it then. But Jesus said, I died on a cross. So, so you confess it now. I want full life for you now. I want us in relationship now because you will find no more liberation for your soul than you will in the name that is above every name, that at that name every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ truly is Lord to the glory of God our Father. Jesus would boldly look at a group of people. This would be a catalyst that would ultimately get him killed and he would say, I'm the way. Not a way, I have the way. Talk about a bold statement, right? If that's not true, He's not nice, he's cruel to say that. But come on, those of you who have tasted and seen how good God is, it's the kindest thing he could say. So I say it with as much kindness as I possess today. Jesus is the way. Give your heart to him today. Jesus is the life. Give your heart to him today. Jesus is the truth. He's not a truth. He's the essence, the personification of all truth. Please invite him in your heart. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I have more than hammered this home, but this is such an important moment. This is why we do what we do, y'all. If you're in here or online listening or watching right now and you have never received the saving work of Jesus Christ, you have never confessed him as Lord and repented of your sins, I wanna give you an opportunity to do that right now. And I'm just telling you as one person, when I did that some 26, 27 years ago, it was literally the single most important, most beautiful day of my life. The whole trajectory of my life changed.
and I would not go back for a second. If you're in here and you say, I would like to put my faith in Jesus Christ, would you just so I can, I can see and we can celebrate and pray for you, would you just put up a hand right now? Just put up a hand and keep it up till I see you so we can celebrate with you. Like I said, yes, I see those hands. Thank you. I see those hands. Anybody else? Yes. Anybody else? Let me come over here on this. Yes, I see the hand. Yes, yes, yes. Man, so many people today receiving Jesus. So many people are about to walk in a degree of freedom that they've never felt before. So Jesus, would you now cover them in your Holy Spirit? Would you do what you say? Would you fill them with streams of living water? Holy Spirit, would you begin to confirm to their hearts and to their spirits the decision they've just made? Would you let them know that they are yours and you are theirs, God? Would you let them know that they are sons and daughters of the King, God? Would they rest in the fact that eternal life is theirs forever, that their sins, their mistakes, their failures are washed white as snow, that there's no more curating necessary, that every part of their life they can proudly get up and testify about and bring it all back to, and I laid it down at the foot of Jesus, at the cross of Jesus, and he changed everything. God, we thank you that today was the day of salvation. God, I pray huge blessing over Hills Church. What an incredible group of people. Bless them, keep them, cause your face to shine upon them. Be so radically gracious to them this week and may everybody walk out of these doors with a peace that passes understanding in the name of Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and if you haven't already, give us a rating so we know how this has impacted your journey with God. To learn more about us, visit our website at hills.church. We'll see you next time.